Well, we are uh, continuing in our teaching series here through the book of Acts, and we find ourselves in Acts uh, chapter 17. And so I encourage you and I invite you, go ahead and open your uh, copy of God's Word and make your way to Acts chapter 17. And if the Lord allows, we will make it all the way through uh, the entire chapter here this morning. You'll find the book of Acts in the New Testament. You can see here with the copy of God's Word that I have open uh, here on the pulpit is uh, the book of Acts is really well near the back of the Bible. And so if you're not all that familiar or if you're new uh, to Scripture, just uh, make your way toward the back of the Bible and you might find Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. And by all means, use the table of contents or ask a neighbor for help uh, if that would be easier too. Acts chapter 17, and we'll be going through it. We'll be working our way through this, um, through this passage uh, just with the different points that I'll be making. But before we jump into the, the passage, I, I want to share with you a, a quick a experience I had this past week uh, at the public library. I found myself uh, studying. I had lunch with David Kidd there off Outer Loop on Thursday, and he and I met for a Reuben sandwich and some good fellowship, and both were wonderful. And, uh, and then I, I made my way just up to the South Central Library. I thought, that's a quiet and cool place. It was hot out. I thought I'd go there and study for a bit. And as I was studying, there was a young lady sitting uh, several chairs over in these nice, comfortable leather chairs, and uh, she was sitting, and she was doing some studying herself, and then her phone rang. And of course, right, like years gone by, if your phone rang, you would kind of exit the scene and talk on the phone there. But that's not the case anymore. Uh, people just have conversations, which is good for me as a pastor, always looking for illustrations. So I happen to, if she's speaking in a public place, then I'll listen in a very public way. And so I'm listening to her conversation, and here's, she's getting in this conversation, and here's what she says. She says, you need to be saved. Your good works won't be enough to get you into heaven. You need a real relationship with Jesus. Now, I had to, I actually I had to kind of look around and say, am I really in the public library? <laughs> this young lady was unafraid to witness to her friend or family member or whoever was on the other side of that phone conversation, was unafraid to witness, and she knew what to say, when to say, when to say it, and how to say it, right? Here she had a fairly straightforward strategy to her evangelistic, to her witnessing appeal. From her confidence, as I listened to her in that conversation, from her confidence, it was evidence, evident that this probably wasn't the first time she'd ever told someone else about Jesus. This week, who did you share the good news of Jesus with? This week, who did you attempt to convince in their heart to compel them to trust in Jesus? To trust in the one who, as that song we sang, vilest of sinners are invited 
to be forgiven. A study on evangelism a couple years ago released by Lifeway Research and their findings, they said that more than half, over 55% of those who attend church at least once a month, they have not shared with someone how to become a Christian in the past six months. And even for some of us, maybe we've never even shared it. Maybe we've never shared our testimony. One of the men at our men's Bible study yesterday morning who asked to be anonymous, but it was a good word, and I'm tempted to to blow his cover, but I won't. You just had to be there, I guess. Here's what he said toward the end of the study. He said, well, you can't get them saved if you don't talk to them about Jesus. (laughs) Now, we understand that Jesus is the one, right? God's the one who does the saving. But we have been entrusted with that responsibility to witness and to share with them this good news, the gospel, the fact that they can be forgiven of their sins. And so for the last several months now, we've been studying through the book of Acts and we've been looking at the book of Acts from the perspective of the role that the believers played in witnessing and in, in telling other people about Jesus Christ, the fact that he rose again from the grave. And that's the perspective that we've been studying the book of Acts. There's other ways you could study the book of Acts, other different themes that pop out, but certainly during this teaching series, we're looking at it from this perspective of the fact that we are witnesses. And this morning, the big idea is this, to be strategic in your evangelism. We're going to see here in chapter 17 that Paul presents to us there are some observations, some lessons that we can learn in our study this morning, some some observations that maybe we can start to become more strategic in our evangelism, right? The primary means that God designed for his message of salvation to spread to the ends of the earth is through word of mouth, right? That was the primary, simply sharing what we know to be true about Jesus' resurrection and how Jesus Christ has changed us. And our hope is that during this teaching series, Right at the end of the teaching series, probably not all of us are going to become Billy Graham. But hopefully at some way, at some level, we are finding ourselves being more and more intentional in sharing our faith with other people. Being being more and more intentional in telling people about the good news of Jesus Christ. And so our study today, our big idea for the chapter for chapter 17 is this is that we would be more strategic that we would be strategic in our evangelism all right believe it or not church and I'll I'll, I'll land the plane in good time Lord willing but I've got six points this morning so those of you who take notes plan accordingly as you're taking notes on those papers all right don't divide it into thirds divide that paper into sixths all right or borrow the back of the sheet or your pant leg or, or whatever you might be able to refer to later But first we're going to see, in in Paul's evangelism strategy, right? We understand the Apostle Paul was saved on that Damascus road, and and then he was sent out, and he did numerous missionary journeys around the region. We find him here in Acts chapter 17. He's on his second missionary journey. And first, what we see is Paul was purposeful 
in his routine. That's the first point this morning is Paul, in his evangelism, he was purposeful in his routine. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. Follow along with me as I read and we learn this to be true. Paul, it says, when Paul, verse 1, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollina, I was practicing that and I still butchered it up. When he passed through those two cities, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, you might even underline that there. It says, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, Paul said. Well, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. We see here in this account, all right, in these first four verses, that Thessalonica, it served as a strategic city for the gospel. Not only was it the capital of Macedonia, but it was also a center for business, and located on it were several important trade routes, and it had an excellent harbor. It was Paul's regular custom, it says there, right, right there, it says, as was his custom, it was Paul's regular custom you might even say it was just a habit, is that once he arrived to a new city, Paul would make his way to the synagogue. If that city had a synagogue, he would make his way to the, the synagogue. And because Paul was from Jewish heritage, he often had an open door to speak from the scriptures and, and to even address the Jewish worshipers, the Jews who were worshiping and praying there at the synagogue. We see here, in verses 1 and 2, right, what we just read, also then later in verse 10, as well in verse 17 of this same chapter, three different times, it's mentioned that when Paul showed up to a city, he would go to the synagogue and he would speak to the people there. In verse 17, we're also told that Paul would also go out into the marketplace to reason with the people that he found in that area of the city. It was Paul's purpose. It was Paul's purpose to go where he wanted to go where people could be found. I wonder, it could be that one of the barriers right to our evangelism, as we talk about having a strategy for evangelism, as we try to raise the temperature, turn up the thermostat a little bit on our witnessing, Maybe one of the barriers to our evangelism is the fact is that our social network is made up of primarily other Christians. Right? Maybe, maybe some of us don't have a lot of interaction with non-believers. And, and maybe that's because you've become really comfortable in your Christian circles, or maybe just season of life sometimes takes us in that direction. Paul helps us to see how he purposed in his, in his daily routine, in his weekly routine, to put himself in places where he could meet people who had never heard of the risen Jesus. So the question here, as we think about being strategic in our evangelism, in our witnessing, the question then is this. Am I being purposeful in putting myself in places where unbelievers will be? 
right? How can we purposefully maybe even adjust our routine? And again, I'm not saying that you have to add something else to your calendar. I'm just wondering, are there little tweaks? Are there different ways that we can adjust our daily patterns so that we can increase the number of relational touch points we have with unsaved people? Now, if you're not exactly sure what I mean by that, let me go ahead and give you some examples, all right, shall I? Maybe in your daily routine, uh, maybe you pick up coffee from a coffee shop. All right, think about that. Maybe you can frequent the same coffee shop or even the same restaurant. You make it a, a routine at the same time each day to even go to the same barista or the same server and to actually engage them in conversation. Or maybe those of you who are back working in the office environment on your lunch break, rather than heading out to your car to mindlessly scroll through the next news-breaking headline, maybe you actually take advantage of that lunch break. Pack your lunch and invite someone to go sit under a tree and, and, and eat lunch together, or to invite them out to go get a bite to eat and you pay for their their lunch at least that first time or so right but that you you capture this time that maybe you're spending elsewhere maybe a grocery store right think about this many of us go to the self-checkout lines don't we right how many of you go to the self-checkout line you know that that computer screen doesn't need jesus did you know that now you, if you get frustrated with the computer screen at that moment, you might need Jesus. But that computer screen doesn't need Jesus. And that's one of the dangers of technology is it separates us from personal relationships. What if you intentionally chose, this is going to be crazy, chose to go to one of those lines that actually has a real person who helps check out your food. And you are, and, and, and we're given a brief moment of time. I know some of us, right, we, we got like two carts overflowing with food. And so think about that, right? All of that opportunity to be able to engage them in conversation. And, and if you go to the same grocery store, some of you have a routine, right? Every Sunday afternoon, you are going to the grocery store, you're getting your groceries for the week. If you have a same routine, chances are there might be a, that same clerk might be there on the same schedule that you go do your shopping. What if you intentionally went to that line so that every week you are having interaction with that same clerk? And I know you might, you might say, but Michael, you don't understand, right? They always have the longest line. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Evangelism isn't always efficient, is it? Evangelism is, isn't always the quickest route. It's not always convenient. What if you established a daily walk? You made it a habit to walk at the same time of day. Because chances are there are some of the same people that you'll pass on that pathway there on your street walking at that same time. In fact, this is, I think this is of the Lord, but Derek is back here. And Derek, forgive me, brother, for calling you out, but I have known Derek now for 13 years. And you want to know why I know Derek? Because every day at 1030, he walks his dog, China, around this church building. And for years, and I have seen both Derek and his dog, China, get older over the last 13 years. 
and they age well. They look good. And in those early years especially, when I would plant myself on the back loading dock and study, Derek and I would have conversations about grandchildren, about U of L football and basketball, about life, about politics, about everything. And how did I get to know Derek? It wasn't me. It was because Derek has a daily routine. What if you take, think about your daily routine, not just as a, as a means of exercising, but you say, God might use this. What about families? What if you are purposeful, right? You, uh, the Wrights, many of us know Carrie and Krista Wright. They did this so well. They, instead of playing football in their backyard away from people, they would play catch in their front yard. And I know this because we lived right across the street from them. Like they had a backyard, but the backyard separated them from their neighbors. And so they would play catch. I mean, I saw, I saw Carrie teaching his children all of these great football patterns. But they would play catch because what that did is that put them in the pathway of neighbors to be able to engage them in conversation. Again, so what we see here is Paul, he made it his intent. It says, as was his custom, as was his habit to be purposeful. To be purposeful in his routine. How can you become more purposeful in your routine? And then the people that you meet, you love them well. You record their names if you struggle to remember names. You record information that as you learn that information about them. Got, on, on my phone, I have a list of people from Panera, right? Of information. Like, that might sound creepy, but it's all for evangelism. It's all for Jesus, right? You can look at it. I've got descriptions. I've got information. On one of them, I've got the date when her dad died because she shared that with me, and that's important to her. Why? Because people need Jesus. And so the way that we can increase the opportunities to speak to more non-believers is to be purposeful in our routines. Number two, persuasive through our words. We also see in these first four verses, we notice how Paul was persuasive through his words. It was Paul's desire to convince people to believe in Jesus. Evangelism is an effort to present clearly what God has done through Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Evangelism is our attempt to affirm and defend the truths of the gospel. Why? So that other people will come to the point of belief. In fact, we see in these first four verses six different words that describe Paul's attempt to persuade. You see there in verse 2, he says he reasoned with them. You see also then in verse 3 where he explained to them. In verse 3, then he was proving to them. Verse 3 also, he was proclaiming. And then we see the response then of, the pe of some of the people in verse 4 where they were persuaded. Some even joined him. All of these words describe Paul's intent to convince. 
to change their minds, to try to help them think differently. Paul is presenting logical arguments from Scripture. The same Scriptures that many of them would have memorized, many of these Jews would have memorized and rehearsed day in and day out. Paul is not, he's not imposing, or he's, or, nor is he manipulating, but instead he is just simply setting, setting a straightforward presentation of the Gospel, graciously hearing their, their doubts and their questions, and he's using Scripture to proclaim the resurrected Jesus and the long-anticipated Messiah. Church, hear me on this. This, too, should be our intention. It seems that oftentimes, as believers, we tend to take a rather neutral approach to evangelism. We kind of toss it out there. We kind of give our testimony. But then we walk away, and, and it's almost as if we're satisfied. Okay, I did my job. Okay, they're not going to believe. All right, well, so what? No big deal. And, and, and we tend to, to take a neutral approach to it. Church, and I've even caught myself, right? I'll tell, well, I'll tell someone, you know, in meeting, I, I, I really don't have any agenda. No, that's a lie. I do have an agenda. I want to I, I persuade you. I want to convince you to believe in Jesus, to present to pre present truth in such a way that you will come to that point of belief that God will use that presentation to change your heart. Right? This should be our intention to persuade other people to believe. I know sometimes we, we, we become uncomfortable with the idea of trying to persuade others to believe. And at times we allow this discomfort to cause us to have this neutral position whether or not a person believes in Jesus or not but that's not Paul's strategy in Acts chapter 17 and elsewhere he is using persuasive words with the intent, intent to convince a person to believe in Jesus let me just let me share with you what happened last Sunday at our picnic before our picnic Josh Bone and I were out there. I was kind of directing traffic, making sure that y'all got to the right shelter house and weren't a part of a birthday party of a complete stranger. And, and so we got to the right shelter house, and as I was kind of out there directing traffic, Josh Bone comes out there and joins me. And as he and I are just standing there, a gentleman who's walking, all right, has a daily habit of walking in the park, he walks by and we start having conversation. And the gentleman, uh, he looked at us, and he said, are you, are you two brothers? <laughs> not exactly sure what. I mean, maybe it's my hair. I don't know what it is. But I, I, I said, well, I said, and this, this is like, all right, this is an opportunity. I thought there's a time to kind of, let's, let's kind of see if we can get this in a gospel direction. I said, well, I said, kind of in a sense, I said, we both love Jesus. We follow him. And so with that, we're part of this, a family. But biologically, I said, no, we're not. We're not brothers. Not that that would be a bad thing. It's just true we're not and so then his response to that is oh I love Jesus and then you got Josh Bone Josh Bone sees that and he takes he jumps he jumps right into that and before you know it I just kind of step back and I think Josh you go man go and this guy started asking questions, sincere questions. He wasn't, he wasn't upset. Josh was being very loving and helping answer. And Josh is speaking in such a way to persuade and to convince this man 
to truly come to the point of trusting in Jesus. So much so. This is like textbook clinic. As we're talking, Josh says, like I had said, hey, you know, John, you'd be welcome to join us at our picnic. You know, we're a bunch of nice people over there, lots of good food. And I'm kind of throwing it out there. Josh takes it a step further. And he said, hey, John, he said, why don't you join us at the picnic? In fact, I'll go ahead and walk over there with you right now. And if you were there, you saw Josh attempting to persuade John to believe in Jesus Christ. Josh, thanks for setting a great example for us last Sunday. And we should be strategic in that. We should be strategic. The next one then is this, is that he was persistent amid the threats. We see this in Acts chapter 17, verses 5 through 15. Follow along with me, okay? So he's, some are believing, some are persuaded, others aren't. In verse 5, it says, but other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob and they started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other believers before the city officials. And they were shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now, they've now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. And then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers, they sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. And on, on arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Again, there they go. And now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness, and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And as a result, many of them believed as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. (laughs) But when the Jews from back in Thessalonica heard that Paul was now preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. And those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. We see in this account that not everyone was persuaded or convinced by Paul's arguments. And we know that, don't we? Right? We have experienced this to be true. When we've presented the gospel, when we've attempted to persuade or convince, we recognize it that sometimes it does rile people up against us. In fact, it's almost like these, these guys who are chasing them all over the countryside. It's like, guys, why don't you go get a hobby? You know, do something else. Maybe that was their hobby. I don't know. But we see that Paul, he didn't hang it up. He didn't, he didn't just give it up and say, well, clearly, uh, God doesn't want me to go and tell people about Jesus. And so I think I'll just go and, and go back to my home and retire comfortably and, and uh, make tents and fish in my free time. What did he do? He persisted. The measure of our success in witnessing is often met with a measure of persecution or heartache. 
No evangelistic work is done without some cost attached to it. Every gospel victory will bring alongside it a new affliction or a new sorrow. Regardless, we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And we are called to persist in our work of heralding the good news of Jesus, to continue in the work of building God's kingdom one testimony at a time. And the reason why we persist in this most important work is because we understand what is at stake. We understand what hangs in the balance for each person. This young lady who I overheard on the phone at the public library, she understood it. She said, your good works won't get you into heaven. She understood the eternal significance. We understand that what is at stake in witnessing in our evangelism is heaven or hell. What is at stake, abundant life or eternal damnation? What is at stake, God's truth or the world's lies? What is at stake, forgiveness of sin for the vilest of sinners or eternal condemnation? What is at stake, immeasurable peace or unresolved heartache? The apostle Paul persisted. He said, I've seen this Jesus. He's alive. He offers to you the forgiveness of sins, life everlasting, the abundant life that nothing in this world can offer to you. And so he wasn't persuaded to hang it up. Church, I wonder in your strategy for evangelism, are you persisting in it? Are you persisting in it? Next we see the fourth one is that he was provoked by the culture. He was provoked by the culture. Follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 16. It says, so while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, again, he's been sent away from Berea. He makes his way to Athens. He's alone, right? Silas and Timothy aren't there with him. So while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, Paul was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols, so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, they began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advoca advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and they brought him to a, a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Oh church, that is our culture today. 
we sit in the quiet and dark corners of our homes listening to the new ideas of the day. While in Athens, Paul noticed that the city was filled with idols. In fact, ancient writers tell us that there were, there were over 30,000 idols in the city of Athens that would have been there while Paul was visiting. It would have just been this. And continue, you just walk down the street and there's idols all over the place. It was said that you could more easily find a false god in Athens than a man. And seeing the overwhelming idolatry, Paul, it says, was greatly disturbed. Some versions say that his, his, his soul was provoked. As he walked the city streets, seeing idol after idol after idol, a storm of righteous indignation began to brew in his heart. As he saw the cloud of idolatry that shadowed out the truth and the light, Paul began to preach what is right and what is true. Paul knew that the only message that could help deliver these people from the darkness of lies was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, you might say, but Michael, we don't have like concrete and man-made formed idols sitting around. But I would say we do have idols in our culture. Our culture is filled with idols and idol worship. On the surface, our idols have a different appearance but underneath the surface, they are all the same. These idols include self, the idol of selfishness and pride, the idol of consumerism and physical comfort, the idol of sensual indulgence, the idol of career success, the idol of mantras like you do you or born this way or as long as it makes you happy. The idols of gluttonous appetites, the idols of efficiency, ease and entertainment, mammon and worldly wealth, even the idols of philanthropic work and good deeds. The idols of political parties. These and others are idols that people choose to give their lives to. They chase after them. They place their trust in them, all in hopes that at the end of their life, maybe these idols will ultimately satisfy them and be able to stand the test of time. We see firsthand the idols of our day, and it should cause us to have a righteous indignation in our hearts that prompt us to share the good news of Jesus more and more. To help people to know that you're trusting in this, but this will never satisfy you. The unmet human longings are displayed in every idol that they worshipped here in the book of Acts in chapter 17. And they are displayed in the idols that we worship today. The gospel, the good news of the gospel declares that only Jesus will be able to satisfy these unmet idols. And it should provoke us. Right? As we see people trusting in all these other idols, it should cause us to say, no, let me invite you to trust in the one who will satisfy your heart. 
who will forgive you of your sin, who will relieve you of the guilt and the shame that you've been carrying around with you all this time. You notice here that so, right, all these intellectual people there in Athens, they said, this is a new teaching to us. Church, let me just help you understand. There are people in your neighborhood, at your office, in your social circles, even now, who have never heard about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they're trusting in every other idol. There's this lady at Panera who, uh, it, I find it so interesting. Again, I, right, my office desk is set right up there. Someone recently asked me if I actually lease that space. I said no. In fact, I get lots of coffee and soda here, so I don't pay much for it. This gal who works at Panera um, often is one of the first ones to say good morning to me. And she is clearly living in a lifestyle that is celebrated by our culture. She's clearly living in that lifestyle. I do not hide who I am or what I do. I have my Bible. I have, I'll, I'll sometimes have a stack of books. I have books. I have my Bible. I have it all. So there's no, I don't just, I'm not trying to like fly under the radar here. So this, this, this lady, who's probably maybe a few years older than I am, she often will be one of the first to greet me. And then it is fairly common that she will come over to my table and just kind of lean across the table and ask me, just, just kind of chew the fat, shoot the breeze a little bit. And this past week, she did that, and she lingered longer than normal. And I was trying to think, okay, what can I talk about? What, what, what do we want to, you know, what can I, because we've talked about, you know, family and relationships. we talked about all these different things. What can I talk about? And this week, it, here's, here's a couple thoughts that I've, that I've had is it seems it's almost because she once referred to me as a, as a church man, all right? She said, you're a church man. Let me show you this picture of these clouds. And I, saw, I felt like I saw a face in the clouds. You know, what do you think? You're a church man. You, you should know, right? Well, here's my dreams. Figure it out. You're a church man. And it's almost as if I just get this sense where she wants to ask the question. She, she wants, she, there's something that she wants to say, but she just doesn't know how to get there. And as, and again, it was almost like there was an awkward science, silence for a little bit where she's, you know, st sitting there and, I, and I'm sitting there and we've kind of run out of things to talk about that day. And here's what it hit me. I thought, you know what, here's what I'm going to do, start doing now. I'm going to actually kind of have a verse of the day. And I'm going to say, you know what? I got a verse for you today. You want to hear it? And maybe it's a psalm, maybe it's a proverb, something like that, that some type of verse that will serve as an encouragement to her. I'm going to trust that God's word is powerful and effective and is able to cut through the shadows and the dark, darkness of her heart, but to, to just in a very natural way engage her in that because her, like, how she's living should provoke me to say, no, but there's a better way. And we should respond in that. And so as we see the culture and as we look at the news headlines, don't become depressed 
and say, oh, forget it. It's all, it's all going down in a handbasket and we're all toast. Instead, let it provoke you to say, but wait, this idol that you're worshiping, there's someone true who really will satisfy what you're chasing after. Number five then means we should be pre- prepared with answers. Acts chapter 17, verses 22 and 31. All right, keep in mind at this point, right, Paul is essentially standing before the Supreme Court of Athens. He's facing men who were highly educated, they were deeply religious, and yet they were totally ignorant about God. Paul was prepared with answers, though. He was not intimidated by his audience, but instead he took these sinners just as they were, and he helped answer their questions by presenting the gospel to them. Starting first with their questions, acknowledging the common ground, and then what did he do? He led them to Jesus. Look here in verse 22. It says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. He says, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Verse 24, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else from one man. He made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps even reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. It says, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your, your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this to everyone by raising Jesus from the dead. Oh, church, there's more here than we're going to be able to cover this morning. The point I want to make is that Paul was prepared with answers This passage highlights the importance of paying attention to the culture and and then meeting them where they're at with their understanding and then being prepared with answers to the questions that they have about Jesus. I've mentioned it already, but every believer is an ambassador of Jesus Christ. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you, you are automatically, this is not optional, you are an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And it's our responsibility to study and be prepared to answer the questions that the non-believers have. Let me say this again. It is our job to study 
and be prepared with answers. And church, it's not that we don't have the time to do so. Track, track your daily habits. Track how much screen time you have, how much entertainment, how much leisure time you have. It's not that we don't have the time. It's just that we've not prioritized it. Paul tells Timothy, study. Oh, we all think, hey, we're on summer break. I'm just going to stick my brain in neutral and cruise control, baby, and just make it to the pool. What if this summer you picked up a book like The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel? What if this summer you, you picked up some of the pamphlets that Dr. Dill had? And I, I want to tell you, take these pamphlets that Dr. Dill has. We have it on a PDF format. I'll send you the file. It's answers to the questions that respond to the culture of today. And what if this summer we said, I want this to be a summer of good news. And I want to study so that when my friend, when she comes to my table and, and I give her that verse of the day. And she says, so Michael, tell me, what do you think about the life I live? That I will be able to respond to her in a gracious and loving way. Not skirting what is true but instead presenting a logical argument according to Scripture that maybe will begin to just turn the rudder of her heart just a little bit more toward Jesus. Isn't that what we want? To evangelize and to witness in such a way that those rudders, they don't have to do a complete 180 today. But just in one little way that it's just going to start inching the other direction. And then finally, what did he do? He pointed them to Jesus. He ends there in verse 31. He says this one, right? Ultimately, the, the idols, the unknown God that, yes, you don't know him. Here's who he is. He's living. He's not dead. He's not concrete. He's not gold. He's not a wood carving on yourself, he is risen, he's living today, and only he is the one who's going to be able to satisfy the longing of your heart. He's pointing them to Jesus. And that's our goal, is to point people to Jesus. In church, we need to make it our intention to be strategic in our evangelism. To, thar- to start thinking in ways that are evangelistic, that are witnesses. I want to com- commend, right, this is Trent Hartledge's last Sunday as a, free, as a single man. <laughs> His last Sunday as a single man. Next Saturday, he is getting married. And here's what he and Addie have given me very clear instructions. Present the gospel. He said, because I've got college friends. We have family members who are there who have yet to believe. He said, present the gospel. And then the wedding planner sends me a timeline, and I'm like, I don't have time to present the gospel with that. I said, you got to give me another 15 minutes. <laughs> Strategic. 
strategic in this. So that when our friends call us, our response can be like that young lady there in the library. You need to be saved. Your good works won't be enough to get you into heaven. You need a real relationship with Jesus. And that would just flow off of our tongues. May the Lord help us to do that. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that our hearts now have been challenged. Thank you for Paul's example. And now, God, we, are, we leave thinking to ourselves, yes, that's what I want to do. But then we find ourselves in that situation. And in those moments, God, um, give us the courage to witness to speak what is true. We have the words of life. If we don't, who will? Help us, Lord. We need help. We need help. In Jesus' name, amen.